I also made the case for owning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply by its design. The total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. It's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 62, got John Carvalho in the house, CEO of Synonym. What's going on, John? Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. You were definitely, uh, as I told you a little while, uh, a few minutes ago on the bucket list, man. And this is just a pleasure to have you here, man. Happy to be here. Cool, cool. John, so I usually like to, you know, let the guests, you know, t- kind of tell us a little bit about themselves and, you know, specifically their Bitcoin story. And I find that, you know, the longer the person has been in Bitcoin, the more fascinating this story is. Um, you're no different. You're, you know, you're one of the OGs here. Um, can you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself and your Bitcoin story? Sure. Um, pretty soon, later this year, I've been in Bitcoin for 10 years. Um, I started in late 2012 and I started, you know, basically by hearing about the Silk Road. And so I heard that people were buying drugs online and I was like, how the hell are they doing this? And I started researching and learning more about Bitcoin. Um, after that, it was like every single month since then, I just fall deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. Like I just, Bitcoin is like everything. It's my career. It's my hobby. It's, I've, I've made it like a big, big part of my life. And so, you know, there, I, I've been through a part of so many parts of Bitcoin's history. I wasn't there from the very beginning. But, um, you know, I've been through all the ups and downs. I've been, you know, pretty much made poor and made rich and poor again by Bitcoin. Um, you know, I've been I've been scammed. I've been through all of it in different ways. And so it's hard for me to, like, give you a whole history with it without you know, rambling on forever, but, you know, just to say, like, I've done some mining, I did some trading, I did, uh, had my own, you know, project where we were doing a video streaming website with tipping for Bitcoin. I worked at BitRefill and now we have our own company where we're making like a Bitcoin ecosystem. That's the latest thing with Synonym. And so if you have any specific questions about different things, I'm sure, you know, any, any part in history, I could tell you what I was doing, but that's, that's the short version. Yeah, well, I think the the natural question that I had there is like, you know, you said you went through BitRefo, you had a tipping service for video, which, you know, as a creator, I'm super interested in where that has been because I haven't really seen a good outlet for that now. Um, but a, a good question is, is before we get into synonym and all the work that you guys are doing there is how did all that experience with BitRefo and doing all those other projects, how did that set you up for what you are doing now in synonym? Um, I would say that, you know, it's, it's always been a process like, I, in the early years of Bitcoin, like I, I chose, kept trying to find my way to contribute and be a part of it um, without just only being a trader or just talking on Twitter all day, you know? And when you're not a programmer, which I'm not, and, and some people have that misconception that I'm a developer or something, I'm not. Um, when you're not that, um, you have, it's difficult for you to find a place and figure out, you know, because most of the culture is about like contributing to Bitcoin core or making an app, et cetera. <coughs> um, and so I, I, you know, I, 
most of my life I've been involved in making products and doing design and branding and, you know, marketing related things. So, you know, I, I used to be in a band when I was young and I had my own record label. And so I've just always had experience with making some kind of product, but more on the creative side. And um, so at first, you know, I, I had gotten, I had gotten a divorce and um, this was probably in about, this was like 2016. And um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start my first real Bitcoin project. And so I partnered with this guy in Romania to do a cam girl website that used Bitcoin as the payment method. And that was pretty interesting. And I still think relevant, but um, you know, things didn't go so well. I, I was my first time kind of making a commercial like application um, on the web. Um, previously I'd mostly like made websites for like, you know, like small businesses, like brochure kind of websites, static websites. And this is my, my, the first time I was trying to do a, bla- do a platform. And I learned a lot about video. I learned a lot about the adult industry Um, And just all the challenges there. And basically I came to a realization that like you need to have a significant budget to be able to approach that industry properly. And to do a video platform is like basically one of the hardest things you could choose to start with. And so I was faced with a decision where I had to decide either to try and raise money like as a startup, which is something I never actually did before um, because I was using my own money. And so I was basically, basically ran out of money um, and I was like, had to make a decision. I was like, am I going to like, you know, go out and do the startup thing and make a pitch deck and try to raise money or am I going to try to get a job? And so I incidentally bumped into the CEO that uh, didn't bump into, but we incidentally had a conversation with the CEO at BitRefill and, you know, we agreed to try working there. And so I kind of put the video project aside and started working at BitRefill doing, you know, marketing and communications related stuff as their, uh, you know, chief communications officer. And that led me to learning a lot about doing business development in the Bitcoin world and doing, you know, product management. I have a lot of, a lot of experience in history doing like project management, but now it's kind of mixing all these roles together. And um, Sergey was nice enough to kind of give me enough rope to hang myself. And I, I made the most of it. Um, and so as I did that, I like established relationships with Paulo at Tether and other people in the industry. And that just basically led to me having like a lot of ideas about things that Bitcoin needs and ways to kind of improve the Bitcoin, you know, ecosystem. And so I, I started thinking about ways that I could do that through the lens of BitRefill. And then um, it just got to be like too different from BitRefill to be able to do it there. And so I started talking to Paulo. I said, hey, you know, like, is there a way that, you know, we can start a new company and do all of this stuff with you and, you know, basically funded by Tether. And he agreed. And so I spent, you know, a few months basically designing a new company and making a new vision. And that is what, you know, became Synonym. And so we were in stealth mode for like 20 months, almost two years. And then we announced the company last November and we're still trying to release our first products, but we have open source, a lot of the stuff that we've like used as building blocks. And we just have a lot of things that we still want to release and are still like kind of juggling and working on. And so, yeah, that's the, that's how I got to where I am now. Yeah. Gotcha. You got a, definitely a dose of, uh, you know, different experiences, especially like you said, in the product uh, lead and management. And then, yeah, you, you were able to tap in. Now, do you think in your opinion that, you know, 
I guess it can happen in any, in, in any industry, but do you think your laser focus on Bitcoin is what kind of got you in the room with these individuals that you said kind of connected you and kind of propelled you forward? Or without Bitcoin, do you think you would have been successful in that same fashion? I don't know. I mean, you, you don't get to see two realities. You only get to see the one you choose. So it's it's easy to have regrets or, or have like what ifs if you start thinking that way. But that's just not how life works. You don't get to take it back. And I, I am very uh, proud and happy of where I am today with what I'm able to be working on and the people I'm able to be working with. And so that makes me very hesitant to take any of it back or explore if I had done things differently, because like I, like everything so far that like my, what I care about in Bitcoin, like this is exactly where I want to be. So I, 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 I'm, I'm happy with that aspect. Um, I would say, of course, you know, being in the Bitcoin world for, you know, some years ends up making you better positioned to, you know, be in continued Bitcoin roles and continuing like rising up the ladder of Bitcoin roles. But, you know, I think that what got me my job at BitRefill was my normal career background. And then BitRefill allowed me to kind of learn to express that within a Bitcoin context. And that helps, you know, align me with uh, Paulo Arduino at, at, at Tether and, Bit, and Bitfinex and kind of get to know more people like him to do a lot of like the projects that ended up kind of bringing us together to to create Synonym. Yeah. Now, right before we go into Synonym, the, uh, I've never heard of the approach of, uh, and this could be common and I'm just ignorant, uh, but uh, of a stealth startup where you said you were working for about two years there. Um, what is, is that by design and, and what is the benefit of going stealth when you're trying to put something together? I would say I probably don't have, I probably can't make much more claim than you about knowing about it. It just felt like the right thing to do for various reasons. So like I had heard of the idea like, oh, this company has been in South mode, but I don't even remember which company it was. And it's certainly from outside of the Bitcoin world. And, but, but the way it felt to me was that I didn't want to go out and make claims and say what we were going to be doing when it kept changing every few months and evolving. And when we didn't, when we weren't even close to shipping anything. And so the stealth mode was not really strategic in the sense of that we had a really like unique thing that we were scared to share with people where they would steal it. That wasn't really the reason. The reason was I wanted, I didn't want to go out and say, you know, this is what we're doing and then change what we're doing and be wrong or look, you know, immature or, or half-baked. And right. so I wanted to make sure that we at least had, you know, evolved enough to where we were coherent in what we were trying to say to people. And even today, like explaining what we're doing is not very easy and getting people to un like kind of grok the entire vision is, 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 or it's, it's work. It's not easy. Um, but we all as a team understand it a lot better and become much better at working together and doing it. And so the stealth mode thing was partly like, just, I didn't want to look stupid and I didn't want to make that, you know, false claims or immature claims. And I, I just wanted to, you know, be able to actually be closer to being able to put something in people's hands when we did announce. And so I got invited to speak at the El Salvador conference, you know, right after there was so much hype with them doing the legal tender thing with Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, like I have to use this as an excuse to finally like come out of stealth mode because what else am I going to talk about? You know, I'm not going to go on stage and just like, you know, bullshit about Bitcoin. I'm going to, you know, everybody's going to want to know what the hell I'm, I've been teasing for the past two years, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I do like that approach. I think, you know, way too often um, in and out of Bitcoin, I think, yeah, like companies always bite off more than they can chew, uh, make a lot of empty promises. Um, an easy, easy recent example for me personally was just the whole compass situation with the mining and taking people's money months ahead of time. And to me, it, it goes back to like where you, you know, basically what you said, if you're not prepared to release something to the people, then why be talking about it? Um, so yeah, I was very interested when you said stealth mode because I actually think that that's a smart move ultimately. There were downsides. Um, like for example, it was really hard to hire people. And so I did get pretty lucky with the first few people that we hired because I had like my own network and Twitter and things like this. So I was able to like connect with some people that either knew me or knew people that knew me. Um, and so there was a lot of appropriateness to the people because they obviously had some alignment with how I see things because they don't, they don't have me blocked. <laughs> um, and, and so, but it was very difficult to be like, you know, making a blog post on my personal blog saying that we're hiring for some company that has no name and we can't quite tell you exactly what we're doing. Um, that, that was difficult. And that was actually one of the major reasons we did announce the company when we did was because it was just too difficult to continue scaling the company up without telling people what the hell it was and showing people where we are. Right, right. Now, in the world of uh, open source development, did you also bump into the situation where you guys had like something really hot and then, you know, because somebody else was more public, they kind of beat you to the punch? Not really. I mean, some of the stuff we're doing, it's tricky. Like on one hand, there there is a lot of quote unquote competition on certain things that we're doing and certain things that we were doing early that other people were also doing around the same time. And that's true even today. But competition is a little bit different in open source. It's more like, um, what's the word? Like uh, opportunity cost. Like if two people are working on the same thing independently, then you don't, and, but there's not really much differentiation. It's kind of like somebody is wasting their time, right? Like you're just doubling effort unnecessarily. And so I, I don't, I've always kind of told myself, I don't really need to be the one to make all the things that we need. And so to try to do enough research to see if somebody else is building the things we need. And, and we did that, like, for example, with like how we use Hypercore um, and like how we are trying to do like token, instant tokens. Like we didn't build those protocols ourselves. We found the best one and implemented it you know, within our the best one that actually works and implemented it within our, our stack. And so I'm not going to go and try to build everything and, and do redundant work. But yeah, as far as like secrets or being beat to the punch, not really because all of the people, the, the most like kind of innovative or risky thing we're doing is like the slash tags protocol, which is sort of like a lot of the web three narratives, but without the shit coins. And so all the shitcoin people are attaching shitcoins and, and weird narratives to as competition. And so we always differentiate in that way where our motives are, you know, for for better or worse and, and for lack of modesty, our motives are always purer than most people's. And so we're always trying to like find what is the most efficient way to do this? What is the least bullshit way to do this? What is the best way for the user? What is the, you know, do we actually need to use Bitcoin at all for this? Do we need to use a blockchain? And, you know, like, and this made us really evaluate and you'll see on our website, we have like these design principles, which are like rules that we use for how we make decisions about what we include in our software. And like one of them, for 
example is we just do not, we will not use any blockchain, but Bitcoin. So that means we won't use shit coins. We won't use uh, side chains. We won't use any type of design that requires an additional blockchain because our understanding of blockchains is that they don't scale. And so you just, there's no reason to add a blockchain to a blockchain. It just doesn't fix anything. Yeah. At worst, it just makes it even slower. Is that safe to say? Potentially, or just, you, you're just kind of, you're either scaling Bitcoin or you're competing with Bitcoin. And so the, my, my view is that if, if it's a blockchain, it's competing with Bitcoin. It doesn't matter if they want to make some kind of, you know, loose claim that it's on Bitcoin or that it helps kill shit coins. Or, I don't care. It's just no matter what you do, if it happens on your blockchain, it means it's not happening on the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. Now, does that is this a I don't I don't know if it's a good segue in that. So that that leads me to the you know you guys pulling off the first USDT over the Lightning Network. Is that that same concept where it's like we can get Tether and we can actually use it on the Bitcoin blockchain instead of elsewhere? Yeah, it's it's an example. Um, you yeah. know, like when I was researching different ways to make you know, like one of the ways that I met Paulo and and ended up connecting with the. Uh, with him is that I was working at BitRefill and I had an idea for a product that would require um, basically making, having lightning tokens, you know, instant tokens. And so I asked a few people if this was actually possible and did some research and they, they pointed me to a different protocol, the RGB protocol. Um, and we, we ended up funding that protocol further to be able to like make it lightning compatible. And that whole project, that's a whole other story, but that project kind of like blew up in our faces in a way. And so we kind of were like, okay, well, if this isn't going to work, what is the, what is the next most practical thing? What's something we can actually get out there? And I, I started researching and really the only thing I could find was, you know, these, these layers that people had kind of neglected on Bitcoin, like, like the Omni layer. And there was already a team that was making a fork of lightning to be able to like understand Omni layer uh, abstractions to be able to create channels out of them. So that team has been working on their lightning implementation for a while. And they, and so we ended up learning, you know, how to implement all of this stack and ended up making some libraries. So you could make it possible to include these in applications. Um, and so, you know, the, so that demonstration we did was just to show that like with existing protocols right now, you know, while it's not quite production ready, there's risks there. It is definitely the most baked thing out there to be able to do instant tokens that are scalable because it takes advantage of both Lightning and Bitcoin. And you don't need some sort of like base layer token, you know, to pay fees. You don't need, you know, some sort of extra blockchain to like, or trusting a federation, like a side chain. You can just, you know, make Bitcoin transactions that include information about token transactions and make Lightning channels out of them. And that was what we were demonstrating, what Corey was showing everybody with uh, that video that we made where we took the pre-existing, you know, USDT on Omni, um, on the Omni layer and, and made a channel out of it and, and did transactions in that channel. Yeah. I'm, I'm not versed on Omni. Can you give me like a, you know, quick TLDR on the Omni layer? Is that just another version of lightning or? Uh, so the, no, um, cause lightning, lightning is unique in that lightning requires kind of it. Lightning is like literally peer to peer, unlike Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is more like of a, of a broadcast setup where everybody gets the same message. And, and so you, everybody resolves and is like basically maximally redundant, but lightning, it's like, 
you have your perspective of your lightning network and who, and anybody that you can connect to via liquidity is how you can send payments. But if you don't have a route to someone, they're not in your network and you can't pay them. And so it's not a global network, kind of like how Bitcoin works. And so the difference with Omni is that Omni is like, it literally is Bitcoin transactions. The difference is that there is a, you know, there's a, a feature in Bitcoin called OpReturn where you can include like custom information in the transaction. So what Omni does is it takes the OpReturn data and it encodes its own data inside of it. And so it puts in like these, these numbers that are like a representation of data in, in what an Omni node will be able to understand. So Omni nodes look at the Bitcoin blockchain and they look for these encoded opportunities that are encoded in the way that they understand. And then they parse those transactions and they see what's inside of them. And so you can use Bitcoin transactions to embed these Omni token transactions. And so it's kind of like this meta token layer that sits inside of Bitcoin transactions. Oh, that's incredible. Is it is it a hard like on ramp onto Omni Network, or is it just as easy as spinning up a node? It depends on what you consider hard. I mean, some people think running a node is hard. Um, I haven't <laughs> actually personally ran an Omni node, so I can't really personally tell you whether it's more difficult than running a Bitcoin node. But I would say it literally is like a fork of a Bitcoin node, and so it should be very similar to run like to run a Bitcoin node. Um, and then Omni Bolt is literally a fork of LND, so it should be very similar to running you know a, a Lightning node. And so you need these two things to be able to do the tokens and separately if you want to do lightning uh, capabilities. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, I don't know how difficult it is, you know, in practice because I haven't done it myself, but there are, there's a lot of similarities to how you would use the existing stack in Bitcoin. Yeah, gotcha. That's a new project I got to look into for sure. Well, new for me, not new for everybody else, apparently. Um, I'll say like, to, to be fair, a downside yeah. of this design is that like, even though you can scale transactions in, in uh, Lightning, you know, in using Omnibolt, um, the downside here is that you have that Bitcoin still isn't doesn't really scale, and so you ultimately have to now pay Bitcoin fees to be able to create token transactions. Mm. And so, if Bitcoin becomes very expensive, like say it costs you know two hundred dollars to put it on to do an on-chain transaction, it could like you know make unpopular tokens. Like they could, they could become obsolete because they can't really, people won't be able to afford that. Like, I don't want to pay $200 to be able to like receive, I don't know, $50 in gift card credit or something, you know? <laughs> and so it, it means that like, as Bitcoin grows, it only, only larger types of transactions will be, you know, realistic because if you're going to pay $200, you probably want at least, you know, $2,000 or $20,000 of tokens to be in that transaction, which really limits who would do this, you know? Yeah. So like the incentive is not there is kind of what that sounds like for people to like massively use it. But Bitcoin has the same problem. In it's other true. words, to be, to be fair, like if it, you, you won't want to send $50 of Bitcoin either if the transactions cost $200. So that's what Great Lightning is, par is partially trying to solve is that instead of you know, doing a lot of on-chain transactions, you make you make one or two channels, and those are expensive. But now you reuse them over and over. Gotcha. I I do want to circle into like now that we're speaking about Lightning. Um, you've you know 
you hinted earlier that you can probably remember every single point and, you know, well, not every single point, but your past in Bitcoin. Um, I want you to like, with all the news that's coming out with, you know, all the new lightning implementations, uh, something stood out to me in a recent podcast that you're on where you said that, you know, people think that there's only one lightning network. And that kind of hit me because although I know of the few, uh, of a few different implementations, it still kind of feels like it's one network for me. Can you, can you dig a little deeper into that, what you were saying? Sure. So, it's important for people to understand this because there are going to be narratives as lightning evolves that conflict with this and people will be uncomfortable and not understand why that this is happening. And there, there are going to be conflicts. There are going to be incompatibilities because unlike Bitcoin, lightning is not a globally enforced protocol. Like if you break the rules in lightning, you don't like get forked out. You just can't do that specific thing unless somebody else in the network understands that. that in other words, if you try to do something new that is not typical, you know, not common in the protocol, not common on the network, then only people that, that know how to do that new thing are the only people that will be able to do that new thing with you. But it doesn't like eject you from the network like it, like it would with Bitcoin. Like you don't fork the asset. You don't get into it. You don't end up on a different blockchain. You just end up because it's a layer and it's off chain. So it's like a lot of, there are a lot of different aspects of Lightning Network. And like, for example, like communication, storage, routing, you know, invoicing, and all of these things are modular. And, and the only reason they are interoperable uh, is, is that everybody agrees for them to be interoperable individually. And so, like I said to you earlier, like, it's not that there's one Lightning Network. It's that there's your view of the Lightning Network, which is essentially it's your Lightning Network. And so your Lightning Network is whatever you can see. And so... The reason why there's more than one lightning network and the reason why you have to not think of it as one global network is because, first of all, you can't just send a payment to anyone unless you actually have a route to them. If you don't have a route to them, you, they're, they're literally not in the same network as you. It doesn't matter that they're using the same protocol as you because I can open channel to you and you can open channel to my mom and you, my mom can open a channel to my cousin and you know, we can get Shane in there. But if we don't connect to anybody else, it's just going to be like the four or five of us, you know, and that's going to be our lightning network. And we don't have to connect to the rest of the lightning network. We can be separate. And, it, and if we stay separate, we can start making our own rules. We can start adding features that no other lightning network node supports. We can add tokens in there if we want. We can, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't, as long as when we settle our lightning channels, that the Bitcoin network understands what we're doing. And so whatever we do off chain, Bitcoin doesn't care. And, and nobody that's in our network cares either. And so you have to keep that, like, lightning is a method. So lightning is basically taking a thing that you could do with one peer, just two people. It's taking, opening a channel with somebody else and agreeing on the starting state of that channel and then modifying that state over and over and over until we're done doing business together. And that's what a lightning channel is. And this, this technology predates and exists, has existed for years before the Lightning Network existed. It's just that in order to make it actually interesting, the Lightning Network was created to be able to attach these channels together and kind of do these atomic transactions where 
I, you could prove that if I send you Bitcoin in our channel, that you will also send Bitcoin to somebody that you have in a channel that I don't have with them, but you have with them. And this creates a routing network. And this is why you have these like liquidity problems and balancing problems and things like this, because whenever you, you send money, it ends up acting sort of like a, uh, it's like transitive. Like I, I tap out my channel with you and you tap out your channel with somebody else and everything kind of is a wave of money that moves one channel at a time. But the Bitcoin never leaves our channel. And so it's still made out of you know two peers and then two other peers. And so the, the, the Bitcoin in our channel never leaves our channel. It just gets kind of accounted for in a separate channel when you route. And so this is what I mean by there not being one lightning network because lightning is just a method of, you know, making com channels compatible and creating sub networks. And so the sub networks can each have their own rules. They can share rules. They can have totally different rules. And so I think there will be multiple lightning networks and they will probably, they might even be many lightning networks and there might even be lightning networks that are totally not interoperable because it's just a method and you can define how the rules of that method as long as, like I said, you can settle to Bitcoin in the end. Yeah. So in this view of like your lightning network and not somebody else's lightning network, um, I could see where those routing payments would fail. And I was kind of more curious and I don't know if you can answer this or not. Um, it's probably by giving up your sovereignty, but like why on like a Zeus wallet when we're trying to use the lightning network, if our channels are not correct, that's usually a fail but we can somehow pick up a cash app, right? And then these, these transactions always seem to go through without failing. Is that because you're being exposed to their network and not your own? How yeah, does that work? pretty much. Um, like cash app is a custodial. Like in other words, you don't hold your own keys in cash app for your lightning. They're, it's their node that you're using and you have an account with their server. And so they, they basically have a centralized version of Lightning where they just have one node and because they, they're pretty much operating as a hub um, and they hold all the Bitcoin, they have, there's less liquidity problems. So like, in other words, they can have a five Bitcoin channel with Bitfinex and a five Bitcoin channel with Blue Wallet and a five Bitcoin channel with BitRefill and, you know, all of these kind of endpoints that people tend to use and they can afford to keep to be, remain very liquid and very well connected. I, I don't know how, I, honestly, I, I haven't used it, so I don't know how, how well connected they actually are, but this, and this is like how the Lightning Network works in an economic perspective. Like economically, all the hubs want to be connected to all the hubs because they become like the kind of highway system of the Lightning Network. And when you do something like, you know, you run your own node and you make and you join and you make a channel with somebody like in Plebnet. Well, Plebnet is if if nobody in Plebnet is connected to Cash App or Bitfinex or Verifill, then you're kind of in a private network with with all the plebs. And so that's only useful if you're trying to pay people in that network. But if you're trying to pay somebody outside the network, then that's not useful. It's more useful to have a channel with a hub instead. Got so the the ultimate trade off in Bitcoin, as usual, security and sovereignty for ease and convenience. Is, it's what's happening here. So you can go to Cash App and do it off a whim, but you're giving well, up the keys. You can have both, um, okay. because with Lightning, the, the, what I'm saying is you don't. The difference between Cash App and running your own node, you can still do that. In other words, I'm saying with your Zeus 
wallet with that yep. node of, that you control that you're connecting to that because Zeus is like a remote app as far as I know yep. it doesn't have a node inside you have to like tell it which node to connect to well that node is your node as far as I know and so if you're already running your own lightning node what you have to do is you have to manage who you're making a channel with you have to be more thoughtful about it you have to say okay I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother trying to you know connect to as many people in Plebnet as possible because I never have to pay those people, you know, if that's true. And so if you're never having to make payments to people in Plebnet, then you say, who, who am I trying to make payments to and who are they connected to? And so you have to make sure you have a route. So you say, when I, when I, when I take the time to buy a channel, well, I should buy it from a hub or I should, you know, connect to a hub because that'll make it much more likely that somebody I'm trying to pay also has a connection to that hub. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, you, if you do all the heavy lifting, all the potential is there for you to be able to do the same thing. Yeah. You can still hold your keys. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas have, Cash App, you're not holding your keys. With Cash App, you, you're holding your password and you're trusting them to hold that Bitcoin for you and make payments. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I got to lean towards the more, I've been, you know, running a lightning node for quite some time since I found out about Value for Value podcasting. Um, but yeah, I've noticed that even, you know, smaller transactions. The same thing is true. Right. With, same thing's true with Chivo. The same thing is true with Strike. Yeah. Like these are like they they use Lightning for their own business purposes. They're they're custodial applications, and that you just have an account with them. So your 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 self sovereignty is not there. Your censorship, you know, resistance is not there when you're using these custodial, essentially exchange accounts. You know that that's basically how they work when it comes to Lightning. And there are actually very few Lightning wallets that are popular that allow you to hold your own node and even fewer that have a node in the application because lightning is actually still pretty early and the designs and what's what's available for app builders to make you know self-custodial user experiences is pretty limited guys we've got a ways to go there so like with all this these different lightning networks and and you know i i see them conflicting down the road it kind of sounds like it's one of these things um does the slash pay what you guys are working on kind of like like make a, a neutral ground for all these different versions of uh, Lightning? So basically, uh, I wouldn't have to worry about what implementation or what protocol of Lightning I'm using. I could still make that successful payment, or is that way off on that? No, you're you're on the right path. I would say it does not totally solve everything with that okay. with that kind of and there's there's a whole spectrum of problems within that problem, but it, and it does solve. A, a, a fair amount of that spectrum, but not the entire spectrum. Because what slash pay is, is it, it's a payment negotiation protocol. So it's a way of like two peers being able to tell each other which languages they speak when it comes to payments. And so it's like, okay, and I don't mean languages in any literal way. I just mean it in a figurative way. But it's like saying, you know, we would slash pay instead of instead of you giving me a lightning invoice and then me saying, well, I don't have a route to you or I don't even have a lightning channel or I don't even have a lightning wallet. Like then we're done. Right. It just, right. it's just a failed thing. But, or instead of saying, Oh, well, can you close your channel and send me on-chain Bitcoin or can you pay me cash? Like it, instead of a failure mode, what I can do is I can say, you know, I can pay you over a slash pay and I can say, look, here are the payment methods I support. Here and, and you can say, here are the payment methods I support, and we can see if we have a match. And so this allows you to basically you know, coordinate which type of payment methods you want to support with your peers, and this way then to find a solution. And so if you support, say you have both Lightning and Bitcoin, and maybe your Bitcoin is like 
also, you know, SegWit, your wallet supports SegWit and native SegWit. But my wallet only supports like legacy Bitcoin and uh, I don't know, and Lightning. Then we, when we look at each other's you know, supported methods, we're going to choose Lightning because, you know, I don't support uh, SegWit in my wallet and my wallet's too old, you know. But we can, but maybe I do support Lightning, and so SlashPay is just a way of coordinating and negotiating which what which method to pay, which methods you support, and then your priority of you know your preferences. So like if there is, if say there's two matches, like we both support two things, maybe I rank one higher than the other, and you rank one, you rank the same one higher than the other, so we use that one. And so this is something that can be automated and handled by your application. You don't actually have to talk to the person. And, you, and what you, your user experience in your wallet is, I want to pay this guy $50 or I want to pay this guy 50,000 sats. You, you just choose what you want to happen in the end and the application figures out the rest. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Would it be like a visual UI thing that says, I want to select this or is it more automated and you guys choose the best route? So but it seems like you answered that already. Um, now, what would Slash Pay need to know about these different payment? Me- Is it just a simple XPub? Like, what would it need to know that I accept Bitcoin or that I accept Lightning? Um, that type of it, it all. De- it would depend on each payment method, right? So, like for example, if you so an XPub would be something that that you would need to be able to receive on-chain payments if you are offline, because. Slash pay is an interactive protocol. And so you need, you both need to be online to get optimal, you know, payment methods to, to have as many as possible. But if one of you is offline, then you need to either like have a reusable address or have an X pub that, you know, is pulling from a list of addresses um, or you need to have a custodian. Maybe, maybe you route your payments to like a trusted payment processor when you're offline. Like there's a lot of ways you could handle it. And now slash pay is just only a proof of concept at the moment. Like the, all of the stuff I'm talking about is what's possible if, you know, when, when, if you use this after it's matured and it's built out. And so we're going to put, you know, the first mature, pay, you know, uh, features within our own wallet app, and kind of put this into people's hands so they can see how it's possible. And so this also mitigates like, you know, talking about incompatibilities in Lightning. Well, for example, one of one popular, uh, you know, topic right now is uh, of tension is, you know, we have something called Bolt 11, which is a standard way of making invoices. And we have a proposal for something called Bolt 12. And Bolt 12 isn't actually implemented, you know, popular. It's not actually a standard because most implementations don't support it. And most wallets don't support it. Like it's not, it hasn't like reached any sort of popularity. And so the standards process that, that developers typically like to use is like, it's kind of at a standstill because it seems like, for example, Lightning Labs doesn't really care too much about Bolt 12 and they have their own vision of how to, you know, improve uh, the the invoicing method in Lightning. And so when there's conflict, what do you do? Well, you could just use slash pay and just say, support whatever you want. And then if I don't support it, I'll pay you a different way, you know? And this way, all of these payments can compete and they don't have to argue. They can actually just compete with each other and see what becomes popular. Yeah, I think that's extremely fascinating. Uh, and I'm looking forward to what you guys are rolling out there because, yeah, I, I think the more and more these inner battles happen inside of, you know, Bitcoin with the different, you know, protocols and implementations, like that just makes the end user life just a nightmare, right? Like nobody really, well, not anybody, but rarely do people have like the same exact setup that are doing the same exact thing. 
And then that makes it hard on the app developers because then it's like, how do we make this thing usable and still easy? Sounds yeah, like it makes it, everybody's life a nightmare. Lighting is already so hard to implement yeah. for every for everybody. And then now, if you're not, you're gonna have to like always keep track of like what the latest you know payment method is, and you have to decide whether to implement it yourself because it hasn't been approved as a standard. If this is the way it always is, it's it's a nightmare for everybody: the user, the developers, the managers, the investors. Like you're just always trying to like roll the dice on what to put your resources into, then and, and that sucks. And it would be better if you could just say, okay, well, at least we we can all run, you know, a meta payment method like something like slash pay, and then we then you know if there's an incompatibility, we can have fallback choices and say, okay, if if Bolt twelve is not popular enough yet, then we just make a Bolt eleven invoice instead, you know. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. So what's the time frame? I know you got the mobile wallets coming out soon. Is it in, in the summer? I think that's how you announced that, or is that different enough? That's the plan. Uh, when we announced the company, I said Q2, Q3, I think, or Q1, Q2, I think I said for the wallet. And that was maybe a bit ambitious um, because I would say recently I'm coming to terms with that. It being delivered by June 1st is probably unlikely. Um, it's probably the first time I'm saying that publicly. Where, uh, But yeah, that, that roadmap is is difficult because... We, you know, the, the longer we are not released, the less kind of committed we have to be to choices we've made in the design. And I'll give you an example, like the way we were going to do lightning in the wallet, we decided to completely gut it and change it a month ago. And so that means that adds a little bit of development time to be able to like re, redo work, you know, to, to change how, what, what, what we're supporting in the wallet. Um, same thing is true for tokens. Like you just end up making different design choices and because you're not actually released yet, you're not actually committed to anything yet. And so you could, it's okay. Should we add a month to our roadmap and do it the way we, that do the way you think it should be done? Or should we just not change and have technical debt and release it anyway? You know? And I think the answer is to, to make it the proper way. Yeah, yeah. And and long term, do you obviously see it hopping outside of wallets being like maybe embedded into a browser or, or things like that? Or you have definitely it, it, like everything about slash tags and any of the, the utilities that we make for it is they're all blockchain agnostic. Like you could use slash pay for Ethereum, you could use slash pay for PayPal if you wanted. Like the idea is that the users define and 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 kind of def- uh, communicate which payment methods they support. And if it's mutual, then you can pay over that method. And, and as long as you speak the same language, you know, figuratively, you can pay however you want to. Um, and so, yeah, basically anything that wanted to receive payments, you know, the more we mature it, the more things we can add support to it for. But, you know, economics dictate some of these decisions. Like we need people to actually use it to justify putting in the work. Like if it becomes really popular for Bitcoin and really popular for lightning, then that gives us a lot of reasons to now like make it compatible with credit cards or, you know, PayPal or something, because the more users you have, the more demands they have and the more interoperability they want. Now I'm sure you get this question often. If you're, if it's agnostic to the blockchain, um, how is security handled? Is that like, on a peer-to-peer basis, or is it as secure? There's, there's no. I would say the question is maybe misformed. In other okay. words, this is just a way of communicating with two people communicating. What's secure is when you get the payment. And so, you know, like so. In other words, say you used some like 
super bad shitcoin. If that shitcoin is insecure, then yeah, you, you have you have problems. Do you have risks? But if that shitcoin is not so bad and it's not attacked while you're using it, then slash pay has no effect on the security because all you're doing is you're saying, hey, here's how you pay me in this shitcoin. And the other person's saying, okay, I support that shitcoin. I'm going to pay you. And then they use the blockchain to send the payment. They don't you they, they don't rely on anything, you know, from 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 synonym to be able to do that, or they don't rely on anything from some like non-blockchain, you know, uh, design. It's just that this is a this is a coordination method. Gotcha. You know, coordinator makes a ton of sense now. Yep, I understand. That's that's fantastic. So you can still just trust on the security of the protocol that you're exchanging value in, and then you don't have to trust in them in that process. Yeah. Although, like, if you do something like PayPal, you know, there's certainly a different trust model than a blockchain. Um, and you know, you might have more censorship problems. You might have to like authenticate in multiple ways because PayPal like wants you, they notice you're you know, in the wrong IP and they, they, they think you're in a new location and they want you to like, you know, verify a text message. Like it could cause a lot of bad user experiences, you know, if the more payment methods you support. So there's some practicality required. Makes sense. Definitely. Um, circling back to the, you know, USDT over, you know, lightning, um, you know, when you, when you made that announcement, I saw a lot of people basically, and I was pretty ignorant to this as well. I didn't have a good answer. Um, people were just basically saying, well, I can load up my strike app with dollars right now and send them over the lightning network. How is this any different? What's your, what's your take on that? So the difference is that when you send dollars using strike, especially depending on what country you're in. Like, for example, I think in Argentina, they're using Ethereum and they're using Tether to send the dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I want to send dollars to somebody in that situation, I'm not only trusting Tether, I'm trusting Strike and I'm trusting Ethereum. Um, And so, and I'm trusting Bitcoin. So now you, so you're trusting Bitcoin, you're trusting Lightning on Bitcoin, you're trusting Strike and you're trusting Tether and that none of those things will go wrong. But if you're sending, say, uh, Bitcoin on Omnibolt, you know, Tether on Omnibolt, you're trusting Tether, you're trusting Omnibolt, you're trusting Bitcoin. Uh, so again, you're, t- you're, t- you're trusting Lightning, Bitcoin, and Tether. No matter what, when you use Tether, you have to trust Tether, right? Like that's just a prerequisite. It's, it's a centrally held asset and they, they, they create digital representations of the assets they hold. And so that is credit instrument. And this is how all credit works. The difference is that like you have two kinds of money. You have like issued money that is just purely an abstraction, like dollars or, or, or Bitcoin or shit coins. And then you have credit instruments like tokens, which are like, they're, they're, they're redeemable for something specific defined by the issuer. And so, you know, these are the two types of money. And I think these two types of money will always exist. You're always going to have a usefulness for trusting someone to use other people's assets. Um, And so in in the situation, like I could just use Strike. Well, there's a lot going on there. Like Strike, like I said, you're trusting an extra party, at least one extra party. And you are also incurring exchange fees because what Strike is doing, and maybe they're, maybe for now they're covering those fees. I think, I think Strike is zero fee. So I don't want to misrepresent them. I don't actually use Strike. So I don't want, if I say something wrong, it's, it's not to be evil. Um, 
that, but, but at some point, somebody has to cover those fees because what they're doing is they're saying, you know, we're taking dollars, we're denominating them in Bitcoin, and then we're converting them to dollars again at the other end. I think because strike controls both ends, there's not really a fee because they, they're just denominating it and they're just making sure they're accurate. And because it's happened so fast, there's very little exposure to volatility. But if Bitcoin drops, you know, 10% in those 30 seconds that your transaction is happening, then strike is taking a hit on that, you know, but that's a small, you know, this is a very small amount of exposure. So it's, it's probably not a problem, but all strike is doing is they're sent, they're using lightning, not you. And so you're trusting them to relay this transaction. It's not happening on the blockchain. It's, and it's probably happening from one strike node to another, or at least half of the, the half of the equation is just a centralized strike transaction. And so, yeah, you, you can do that, but that's like saying I can use my bank account to send you, I can use my Revolut card to, you know, pay you with my Revolut app and you can have those dollars in your account instantly as well. That they're not actually settled till you know next week, and you're trusting Revolut, and you can be censored and all these things. But in the end, Strike is just basically it's 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 like it's like a PayPal company. You know what I mean? They're they're doing payment processing. They're just using they're not using like Swift or or you know uh, IBAN or these kinds of things as rails. They're using you know Lightning as rails, but they're using it, not you. So so with if you were using Tether on Lightning. Um, then you're basically, you're always having control of the keys to that bare instrument. In other words, that right, that claim that you have with Tether, you are always in control of it. And you, so you're not adding another trusted person to the equation. And that's the difference. It's more self-sovereign. It's more, it's less censorable, et cetera. Yeah. And the, um, uh, not to, you know, take in, take it to also take into consideration the on-ramping that Strike is probably not available in your country anyways. And you're going to need to KYC yourself into having a connected bank account to be able to get those dollars into that. Uh, Very correct. Uh, I, I left those things out, but you're extremely right. That is a huge difference in that Tether on a blockchain is borderless and Strike is not borderless. Yeah. So this is a good old fashioned, you know, Americans are just focused on the problems here and not around the, world, the globe. Indeed. Americans seem to think America is the only place that exists sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's what they spoon fed us forever <laughs> since we were growing up. So <laughs> it's one of those things. Um, all right. I, well, I, before we get off them, and I only got a few more questions for, uh, here to respect the time. I do know on your website, you guys are pretty much just welcoming, welcoming us to the atomic economy. Um, can you briefly just define atomic uh, economy for us? Sure. So like, when, if you ask me what synonym is, I would say, you know, we are, uh, we're a company creating a post hyper Bitcoinization ecosystem. And so that, and I would call that the atomic economy. And what that means is essentially the simplest way I could put it is, you know, the concept of a circular economy. And, and so, you know, when people talk about hyper-Bitcoinization, they talk about basically Bitcoin being the only money or Bitcoin being at least the main uh, store of value, you know, the, the backing asset of everything. And you have like these memes like infinity over 21 million and things like this. Like they're just trying to say that Bitcoin is like the thing that is abstractly defining all value. And so that's what hyper-Bitcoinization is. And then it also means that, you know, you're going to have to presume that this means some sort of circular economy because if Bitcoin is the only asset or the only store of value, then that means most people would be transacting in it. Um, now, 
there's a caveat there that as I've done my own research that I've learned that I just, I just don't really believe that Bitcoin will ever be the only money. I think for, for there's for on one hand, this is a separate topic, but on one hand, I think there will, there will always be demand for an alternative. And so there will always be at least one counter currency, whether it be dollars or, or shit coin, but there will always be at least one counter currency that people will want as competition. Um, and so I, I think that's unlikely to go away. Um, and then more importantly, there will always be the need for, you know, capitalism and thus the ability to use, to trust other people and use other people's assets to accelerate the growth of your business. And so the, the ba- most basic form of capitalism is this need that you have to, you know, establish credit and, and issue credit. And so that, that was something in our design for this, like for a synonym and this atomic economy concept is basically we need Bitcoin and the hyper Bitcoinization concept as the, the best store of value, the best money. And then we need some way of expressing and managing a credit system. And so how do we deal with a credit system? Well, credit system involves trust. And so that means now we have to basically digitize trust. And so the atomic economy is combining the concept of a circular economy with the design pattern that is called a web of trust. And so it's basically creating a digital economy out of webs of trust that that are based on Bitcoin and credit. And so a web of trust is a way that you can mutually define trust and, and you know, do, you know with, with the counterparties, so you can say, and I, I've given examples in other podcasts and I don't want to ramble for too long because you, all you did was ask what atomic economy meant. A web of trust is, is basically the, the major part of that design. So you need, you need this web of trust and in order to do a web of trust, you need like things like, you know, a, a way to authenticate digitally and prove who you are as an abstraction as well. And so that's why we have slash tags. Slash tags is a way of basically using keys for everything. And so we combine Bitcoin and Bitcoin technologies with slash tags and hypercore, which is sort of like BitTorrent. But you know, but uh, cooler. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and uh, to create this atomic economy, and this allows you to cover all of the use case. These these things combined cover every single use case that you might need to cover to create an alternative digital economy that does not require big tech, big banks, or big government. Oh, that's so ambitious, man. Uh, are you guys the only one? I mean, what's the competition like? I guess at the core of the question, like. I, you're, that's the most elegant way I've seen somebody explain, which is what I believe as well, which is going to be nearly impossible for Bitcoin to be the only thing out there. And I've never heard somebody explain it so well. Is there a lot of competition for what you guys got going on? Uh, I would say because we're doing so many things, we have competitors in each area of what we're doing. Okay. But as far as people that are doing uh, a, a very comparable stack to us, like um, I would say there may be potentially just as much uh, collaborators as competitors potentially, but Block is actually a great example. Um, they have a stack that's looking more and more similar to the vision that we want to see happen. Um, but they're also doing even more. They're you know they're doing you know they're getting into like hardware wallets and mining. And I don't quite have you know 
I'm ambitious, but I'm not that ambitious. <laughs> um, okay. But then again, they they already have millions of users and billions of dollars, so they're in a little bit of a different situation than me. Maybe if I were in that position, I would be more ambitious. But I think I'm already overly ambitious as it is, and so we're focused more on a subset of their stack, which is like they have like uh, as a parallel to slash tags and hypercore. They they're using like Ion and the TBD. Uh, project and they're probably going to use IPFS or something else. But they, in other words, they have a stack that, that kind of mirrors what we're doing with slash tags and, uh, and uh, hypercore in ways, although differentiated, like they're more, they're more focused on like, like a DEX than like, I don't know. I don't I, I think that if we make this all properly, like everything is a DEX. So I'm not going to focus specifically on a, on a trading DEX. Um, and then they have Title, which is a content platform. We're also going to be building a content platform out of slash tags and hypercore. Um, we're kind of just getting that started, hiring that team now. Um, we have our wallets. They have Cash App. We have, you know, um, I don't know what else we're doing. The token stuff, I guess they're not really doing either. Um, but that you know, so there's no parallel there with, with in that case. But we have other competition in that area as well. Um, and then social media, you know, you have uh, used to be part of their stack, but then Jack left Twitter. So, um, and, and so Blue Sky is technically a Twitter project, but they're working on decentralized social media and slash tags and hypercore will also enable that use case very, very well. And so this whole alternative economy is basically a social economy. And so, you know, it requires things like webs of trust and slash tags and, you know, all these things I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I... The, the perks of having endless pockets, I guess, is, is that problem that you guys are facing there and they, they have the endless pockets. Um, I actually am very interested because this podcast is value for value and, and sats being streamed. You, know, you guys coming out with a, a content platform. Um, you know, I've spoken on this show a ton of times that I think the Jay-Z title, you know, Jack relationship there is ultimately going to lead to, you know, fuck the record labels and these artists are now going to be able to get at least sats or something straightforward there. Is that the same vision that you guys got with your content um, platform that you're thinking about, or is it completely in a different direction? I would say there, there's, there, there will have to be similarities because in the end, monetizing content is, is a good goal and, and it's a mostly unsolved problem. Um, you know, you've seen pockets of success in this, like Bandcamp for a while used to work for people, you know, and they used to be able to get some money, but you know, there's like an incentive problem and a marketplace problem. And so title, I don't know how successful it is, but I imagine it's doing okay. Um, uh, the big problem is how do you establish a marketplace? Because that's why everybody wants to centralize. It's that they know that they'll get eyeballs on their stuff. They'll get ears on their stuff. And if you, just because you give everybody the power to sell stuff does not mean that that stuff will sell. Right. And and the truth of the matter is that you always had the ability to sell your podcast or collect tips. So you could have, you know, ten years ago, you could put a PayPal button on your web on your own website and ask people to PayPal you. But the problem is that tipping has like a ceiling on how much money you can make. You know, how much people will just are willingly, you know, going to voluntarily make an effort to pay you. And so you have to have like you have to, we have to try things. We have to see how we can incentivize people to pay, you know, what kind of, uh, 
you know, gamification we can create, what kind of reward we can create, whether it be intangible or, or literal. Um, you, you have to give basically, you have to experiment and offer a lot of different monetization methods. So that way people can tailor their content to their audience and tailor their monetization methods to their audience and thus create these marketplaces. And so like, for example, a web of trust model, I think is a great way to establish kind of a dynamic marketplace where people can kind of find what they're looking for through these kind of mutual definitions of things. And it, it maybe could be a much better way of targeting your audience and, and your audience targeting you because it's like this, it's almost like an algorithm that is created by the users instead of created by Google. And so that, that could be a way to facilitate, you know, not a DEX, but, you know, a kind of dynamic marketplace, but that's not as, as simple or as convenient as just like, getting your your new album on the front page of title you know yeah, <laughs> or getting yeah. your new getting your new album you know on the front page of google music or something like if you can get exposure to an existing centralized marketplace you're going to get a lot more you know opportunity for people to you now like your music and pay for it or get or get paid for it through advertising and such yeah yeah and the fairy tale of mine well i guess a certain aspect of it of mine's i would like to say that you know taking ownership as a creator myself, then you just have to make the content be that much better. Um, so you don't have these, like what I call fiat shortcuts of like ending up on Apple's front page because the record label was able to put up X amount of dollars to get you there. Uh, and these like free marketplaces and that we can upload our content to. Uh, I like to think that the better creators are naturally just going to get more exposure. Uh, would you agree with that well, or disagree with that? I don't disagree with it. I just think that you can't only think that way. It's not enough to only think that way. Um, like I agree that that good content should have a better chance of success and probably will have a better, better content should have a better chance, but that is definitely not the only factor. Like I remember I, I did work in the music industry for a time and I worked in that industry when it was a lot easier than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and what you have to remember is with a, more accessible market, you have more competition and not, and most people aren't as unique as they think they are. You know what I mean? They're like, if you start a metal band and now you go and like, you know, put yourself on a metal band, you know, category in every, you know, music application, you're going to learn that there are a lot of metal bands and a lot of them are pretty good. And a lot of them are better than your band and are, are, are already have a better audience. Like there's a lot of competition out there. It's things are very accessible. And so a lot of people want to hate on like the record label or hate on advertising. But the problem is these things serve a purpose. They didn't get created because humans are evil. They get created because they serve a purpose. Yes people leverage their monopolies on things like this to exploit people and take advantage. But the actual design of them is not evil. The actual purpose of them is not like backwards. The purpose is that in order to get your music into people's hands, to get into people's ears, you need help. And you're not, you're not, you can't do everything yourself. You can't be the best guitarist, the best singer, the best drummer, the best promoter, the best designer, the best, you know, mixer, the best recorder. You can't do everything. You need people, you need trust, you need cooperation. And so that's what labels ultimately provide is like when you say they had enough money to pay to get you on the front page, that means that they had enough, you know, network and enough resources and enough, and they were willing to put enough risk into giving you a chance because your quality of your music and, or, or that, you know, they think you're, you're, harmonizing with the market at the moment. Damn. 
Well said. Just let me hate the record labels, John. Don't, don't, sour. <laughs> don't take that away from well, me. Well, everybody man. needs help, man. Like everybody, you can't do everything alone. And, and yeah, I don't think you should, you should sell your soul to somebody that's going to exploit you. Like yeah. in other words, yeah, record labels are known for basically saying, I'm going to make a lot of money off of you and not share it with you. And right. that's shitty. But, you know, there are ways, you know, that, that's mostly they exploit the ignorance of artists. The artist doesn't know any better. And they think, oh, I'm going to get a $100,000 check. Wow, I never made that much money in one moment in my life. I never made that money, much money in one year in my life. And then they get a 100K check and they're like, wow, this is awesome. And then the record made, then the record sells 50 million copies and the record label makes millions of dollars. And you're like, oh, shit, like yeah. 100K is nothing, you know? And, and so that's that's not a... That's 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 a education problem. That's a you know uh, that's a technicality that they're, they're exploiting you, and so you need to find people that you can trust. And, and I think that's one thing like webs of trust help with is you can say, okay, how do these record labels all compare to each other? Who trusts these labels? Which artists are, are getting the most compensation? You know, like you can, the more information people share about who they trust and why they trust, the more context you can create to have a more efficient and more aligned marketplace. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I, I just, you're right. It, it all depends on the individual's um, situation and also their education going in. Do you sign a shitty contract or do you actually do your due diligence with people you trust, uh, go through that? I just, you know, as usual, I guess being uh, very short-minded in that sense, I just, the fact that they're able to get to the point where they can abuse an artist or abuse a creator and all types of arenas. I mean, you know, video games on, they're just like... Sh- stealing you know creativity from artists uh streaming is another arena where it's just stealing a bunch but you're right i guess it's just a balance i guess that also helps. that's why we need webs of trust man because with the web of trust what happens is is reputation isn't very sticky because nobody actually measures very well and nobody even bothers to like share when they do measure so like when an artist gets fucked over well that artist only has a hundred thousand dollars he doesn't have much of a platform to be able to complain and if he tries to record a song about complaining about his label they're not going to promote it and so it's like you have only have so much ability to spread the rep the reputation of somebody and most of the like the review systems we have and things like rating systems that we have at the moment they're all centralized so they're all very censorable they're all very biased they they're you know you you saw like with um i forgot which platform it was but one of these crowdfunding platforms like during the time uh that that they were having the Canadian truckers and the the freedom truckers and such, they were trying to get donations from these these crowdfunding platforms and they got censored ultimately. And then Trustpilot, one of the review sites, they started censoring the reviews because they had this influx of bad reviews for this crowdfunding website. But like, so like, what's the point? Like, if you can't actually know the truth, how do you ever, you know, know the real reputation of somebody? And how does, how, why, why, why would there ever be consequences for behaving badly? You might as well just be a criminal because it's the only way to compete in a world of criminals. And I think that having, you know, a better web of trust will create more accountability and give people a better way to communicate information and, and, and show and prove that the information that you're getting about other people is even trustworthy because I'm not going to care what you think about a record label if, for example, you have no reputation with anyone for any reason. I'm just going to think you're just some anonymous nobody. Mm. But if you're a former artist that is like, you know, 
really popular and has a reputation and has a good reputation for other reasons, then I might listen, you know? And so we have to be able to share this information with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I don't, I don't know how freely people are sharing information now. I, I tend, I tend to think in Bitcoin is more than in other arenas, but I don't know, man, people kind of feel that if they give away their quote unquote secret, that it's over for them instead of believing that they can come up with more clever ideas. There are people who want the game to be fair. And then there are people who want to find out how they can cheat the game. And that's, that's the, like, I, I think there are two kinds of people and that's like the line that you split people on. Like there, this is good and evil. This is people that want everything to be fair and they want competition cooperation to be like a, a kind of a, a virtuous thing. And there are people who want to figure out what the angles are and people who want to exploit ignorance and exploit people. Oh yeah. Well said, man. That nails, uh, uh that nails that whole point of the conversation and, uh, extremely well. Uh, I got one more question for you, John. And, this one is, um, you know, could be long-winded, could not. It's up to you how you want to answer it. And back to the beginning when I said, you know, the longer somebody has been in Bitcoin, the more interesting their takes and the more fascinating their story is. Um, I've, I've been curious about this whole trend lately of like institutions need to come in in order to make Bitcoin be successful. Uh, that comes with a boatload of regulations. Um, what's your take on that? Because the more these big institutions come in, yeah, I know number go up, but the more, you know, away from the, the narrative of Bitcoin we get, in my opinion. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on that. So I, I have opinions on this, but just to get, make sure I answer, answer you properly. Can you give me an example of what you consider an institution? Um, just to, I, I, I think generally as whales, right? So like big pocket people that are trying to come in, uh, like these big, you know, um, stock, uh, stock exchange traded minor companies that are coming in. And then the argument for those people coming in with the big pockets is, is well, it's okay because we need them. They're the ones that are going to make this thing go to the moon. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, I think that I agree with you. Um, I could make an argument for both sides just to be fair, but I do agree with you. In other words, like, there are two kinds of people. There are people who want to exploit people and there are people who want to make the game fair. And the people that, that see that like when um, a public mining company is going to spend a bunch of money or uh, UST, uh, you know, the, this, this new uh, stable coin slash pseudo Ponzi scheme thing with Luna coin and all this, oh, he's buying billion dollars of Bitcoin. Like when they see that somebody's going to pump their bags, they're happy you know, initially for that to exploit that person and because and get their bags pumped. But Bitcoin, you know, that, that this, this kind of behavior is fleeting. Those somebody is going to sell those bags eventually, and it's not going to be you most likely it's going to be them. Right. And so the, and it creates centralization, which creates, you know, uh, imbalanced amount of influence on one, in one way or another. Um, and it, like you said, it, it brings regulation. It, it makes regulation enter the picture. And so, you know, for example, um, not to criticize Michael Saylor in any, you know, any uh, horrible way, but he promotes the leveraging of Bitcoin. You know, he promotes, you know, borrowing money and buying Bitcoin with it and getting institutions to do this. And, and there are certain tax advantages to behaving this way, et cetera. And, um, there are also people who promote, for example, using an IRA to buy Bitcoin and oh, using don't get me started on that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically using government constructions to kind of leverage Bitcoin in some way or another. Um, all of these things are okay while the government isn't noticing and while the government is not changing. But eventually, these things become overweight 
and they become, they get the attention of the government. And you get people like, for example, Janet Yellen saying she wants to tax unrealized gains. And so what happens if there, you know, these loopholes become, you know, attack points for the government They say, Oh, we have all, we have, we have, you know, $60 billion of Americans have, have $60 billion in Bitcoin IRAs. Let's tax those fuckers. You know what I mean? Like, right. let's remove the advantage of the IRA or let's like make sure that we keep track and tax the fuck out of them whenever they do realize the IRA. Like you just become like a known target. They know you have that much Bitcoin. They know what it's worth. They know when you bought it and they know when you sell it. And so it's like, you just become, you know, involved with the government. And my advice usually with people is like, liquidate everything, liquidate your 401k, liquidate your IRAs, get the fuck out of every government program because you can never beat the Bitcoin price. You know, I liquidated everything I had in that regard in 2016, 2015, like the Bitcoin price has gone up tremendously since then. And it was only a few thousand dollars I had in those things, but a few thousand dollars back then was, you know, multiple Bitcoins, you know, and, and I'm granted, I didn't hold Bitcoin the way I should have since then, but, you know, just, just, you know, just narrowing down the conversation to something like this, you know, you can see how, who cares if you get like a tax benefit by using an RRA when you can just fucking buy Bitcoin with that? When Who cares if you get a 401k and you take a little bit of a tax hit if you cash it out? You can get Bitcoin that you can hold yourself right now. And that Bitcoin is probably going to appreciate significantly and significantly more than whatever advantage you're getting by involving the government. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that when you bring people like Sailor into the mix, you invite more government participation into the situation and you invite, you know, he also thinks that like he feels the need to talk good about the dollar and say that dollar is, is, is the, is the currency and Bitcoin is the store of value. And so he also will talk about like regulatory clarity and people, I don't know how much he talks about that, but people like him will talk about this, you know, and you'll start getting like ESG miners and ETF people want there to be more regulation. So there's more regulatory clarity so we can have an ETF and you just ended up putting everything more and more into the system we're trying to dismantle. And that's not, that's not progress. It's not Bitcoin progress. Yeah, no, you said it more eloquently, of course. But yeah, I'm on that same thing. Contrary to, you know, having the unchanged position and the IRAs and stuff. I think it's just, it doesn't make sense to put rules on money that we're not supposed to have rules on it. And then, you know, just to make it more, you know, all the hard work that you did, that I did, and anybody that has actually like tried to learn and go down the rabbit hole and get better with this, you're basically just like, you know, saying that that doesn't mean shit by making it more comfy and and more friendly with regulation to get, you know, big pockets to come in. And I think that's just completely upside down. I think it just puts more stress, you know, uh, on us, the people that are actually trying to do the work and push it forward. And going back slightly to the conversation with Cash App and you guys, I think this is like a like a stepchild conversation out of that, is is that, you know, we can't make things better for the big pockets or more comfortable when we got so many people that are doing the heavy lifting and the hard work now, those people doing the heavy lifting and the hard work should be the ones that are seeing the incentive, not the bag pumpers or the regulators and all that. But I'll give you another perspective that I think sure. is interesting, which is I talked about two kinds of people, you know, the people who exploit people and people who try to make the game fair and play the game fair. Um, 
the the problem with government programs is what you call a tax benefit or what you call you know a loophole or you know some sort of discount the only way the government gets resources is by taking it from people and so that means that there are some when you save money somebody else paid for that and so you're exploiting people when you take advantage of government programs. You're just saying in order to not either not pay my share that I'm supposed to or to get like, for example, like the the payouts that they did with COVID when they get sent everybody, I don't know, $600, $1,200, whatever it was, you know, depending on your family and all this stuff, mm-hmm. like that's money they had to take from someone. They didn't like that's not revenue. It didn't come from, you know, providing a service. It's just literally money that they print. They printed more money, which meant that it disproportionately gets taken from someone and given to someone else. And there's no way to like proportionally devalue everybody and also have a benefit. If everybody loses, you know, if every, if everybody's proportionately taking money from, and then proportionately giving money back, there's no gain. There's, you know what I mean? So in order for it to actually matter, you have to take money from somebody to get those advantages. And so when you participate in a government program for a personal advantage, or when you, you know, whether it be a tax write-off or some kind of uh, subsidy or anything like that, whenever you take advantage of a government program, you're literally taking money from somebody else to accomplish that goal. And is that, is that how you want to live your life? I don't know. Mm, man, so much, so many gems in this conversation, man, you're killing it. Um, John, just to respect your time, um, please let the listeners know where they can follow Synonym, where they can follow you and anywhere else you want to send them, please. No problem. Uh, so yeah, if you want to follow me, I am Bitcoin error log on Twitter. Um, for the company, we are synonym underscore T O synonym two at, on Twitter. And our website is synonym dot T O synonym dot two. Uh, and I guess, you know, we have we have Telegram channels or information you can find on the website. We're going to be releasing our like Block Tank LSP product um, in in uh, about two weeks from now, uh, and we have a lot of stuff that we're going to be you know releasing open source code, more products, and we're hiring. And you can go to Bitcoin or Jobs or our website to look at you know what, what current positions we have open. We're always probably going to be hiring for a while um, for various roles and. Just, I know I appreciate anybody's consideration and trying to learn what we're trying to do and try on the things that we're making. And, you know, if anybody ever has questions, just let, let us know. Yeah, listeners, if this whole conversation hasn't been proof enough that you need to check out what John and Synonym got going on, then uh, I guess you're not going to make it. It's the easy, <laughs> dumb way to say it. But, uh, John, Thank you for everything you've done, not only, you know, in your early, you know, earlier in Bitcoin, um, but what you continue to do every single day and pushing it forward uh, and keeping this mission alive. Um, I'm nowhere near, obviously, developer level or exploring these things. I'm actually trying to figure out how I can best contribute to Bitcoin as well. But I appreciate, you know, the the cross bearers, if that makes any sense. And I, I consider you to be one of those. Um, thanks. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for giving me the chance to like expose our, our my experience and our information to your audience. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, guys. That wraps up episode 62 with John. Um, check us out on Bitcoin TV. We try to get, you know, as many people away from the YouTube algorithm as possible. We are on YouTube if that's more of your thing. But why not try something new? Head on over to Bitcoin TV. You get to see all these episodes. 
Uh, same thing on the podcasting, on the audio standpoint. Check us out on Fountain App. Check us out on Breeze. Uh, stream us some sets. That's how we're able to keep the lights on here and be able to stay ad-free, which is something that we're dedicated to here on Talking in Bits. Uh, but if you don't have any of those platforms and still just want to soak up this knowledge, you can check us out on the legacy platforms like Apple, Spotify, all those other good places. Uh, I appreciate you guys as always, and I'll see you next week. Take care.